All right. On today's episode of Sokka's Is That So, I have a very, very special guest. Uh, we are speaking to Christian Tooley on today's episode. And Christian is the founder and CEO um, of iCubed. Uh, it's investing. And uh, in terms of what they do, they invest and they nurture uh, queer founders and help them get to success. But he also holds the title at Bain Capital, uh, should I say Bain & Co., where he leads the team focused on innovation strategy and business building, as well as venture capital. So uh, a man of many talents, uh, someone that does a lot. So welcome to the show, Christian. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Absolutely. So why do we dive right in? The first question I usually like to open up with is, uh, what is your current perspective on the venture capital and sort of innovation landscape as we see it today? A very good um, pertinent question. Um, so I think we're, we're seeing a few things happening right now. In terms of the wider venture landscape, I personally think we're moving beyond just ESG and impact investing. <sighs> And what I focus on a lot and where I think the industry is going is towards intersectional investing. So not just investing purely for impact, not just investing based on um, innovation in terms of business model and technology, but also investing in terms of the intersectionality of the founder. Because with, with that at the heart of investing efforts, impact and innovation thrive as well. So the returns on investing in intersectionality are, are high. Um, and that's personally where I think the industry is and should be going. And in terms of innovation, from, I guess, my putting my Bain cap back on now, right now we're seeing corporates understand that there's, there's really no one size fits all. And you really need to lay multiple bets in non-traditional innovation spaces in order to succeed. It's not as simple as let's have an innovation lab or let's partner with a startup, but there's multiple different layers that vary all the way from like LP investments to uh, an accelerator on a specific type of technology that links to their core business model. So yeah, for me, it's moving towards intersectional investing and it's also laying multiple bets in innovation beyond the, the standard like innovation theater that we saw like pre-COVID. Awesome. I'm curious what you mean by innovation theater. <laughs> Sounds like you've, you've seen a few things over the past couple of years. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so by innovation theater, um, this is in without naming names. And um, this is when corporates or even my like, individuals will showcase like portraying key trends and concepts um, at events or through certain initiatives about actually putting their money where their mouth is and actually in investing in that change and in that innovation. Um, and often like the easiest way to do it would be for them to pull together a small team to focus on building, say, an app, because an app is innovation. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, they'll showcase this product um, and that's it. And the questions I always ask are where are the metrics behind it? Where's the value proposition? Has it gone to market? Has it been success? Has it changed? Um, your stock price in terms of your core business portfolio or has it opened you up into new adjacency industries or into uh, completely new ventures but if innovation isn't doing that it's barely innovation i say at the lower end of innovation you've got incremental innovation mm. which is when you're using existing technologies and existing markets but often with innovation theater they're 
they're at that level, but they're not even using them. They're just showcasing them. And there's a difference between putting on a show and talking about innovation versus actually doing something about it and making real changes to like your business and the ecosystem. Absolutely. I actually saw a quote by Peter Thiel a couple of days ago, and he was talking about how just because you make an app for your grandma and she's able to like get better dentures or whatever it is, that's not true innovation. If you look at history, big breakthrough innovations have been like deep tech or, you know, groundbreaking technology. So I completely agree. What classifies for innovation today is very different from what it was a couple of years ago. Nowadays, just an app is considered innovation. Why do you think the bar got set so low to the point where now just having maybe a new delivery mechanism is considered innovation? Why, why do you think this, is, this has happened over the past few years? To be honest, I think because people, especially those with a lot of capital, which often will be traditional corporates, have realized that A, it takes a lot of capital, B, it takes a lot of time to fail. And if you look at the organizational structures and political landscapes of a lot of organizations, you need quick returns. You need to show your value of being there. So if you're saying we're going to lay these bets, but it's going to take a few years to pay off, that's not going to give them the political momentum and clout to basically excel professionally. Um, And to your point, it's true. And I think another part of the problem is people don't understand how to define it. Um, and a few years ago, when I wrote um, a piece for, for WEF, I came up with this structure that in my head was the clearest way to define innovation, but it's just thrown around so much. And I mentioned one of the terms earlier, but in the bottom left corner, you have incremental innovation. So this is existing market, existing technology. If you move one to the right, you're still in the existing market, but then you're looking at new technologies. That's disruptive innovation. That's like the classical academic dis- definition of disruptive innovation. If you go back to incremental and you go one step up, you're using the same technologies, but you're using it in different markets. So that's architectural innovation. That's essentially what Uber did. They didn't invent the algorithms, machine learning, and that software behind ride hailing. They just did it in a different market. Then if you combine the two new markets and new technologies, in the top right, you have radical innovation. And that's, to be honest, something we don't see as much of. Often it will be applying a new technology in a different market, architectural, or if it's technology-driven, there's a bit of a disconnect between the the academic and research world. So there may be a patent out for new technology. So it sticks in the new technology sector, but to try it in a new market, there's there's a disconnect across the ecosystem. So it never really gets to the radical stage of being implemented. Absolutely. I have this feeling or hypothesis that over the next couple of years, we're going to see a big shift towards Uh, deep innovation, sort of real radical change. And I think the pandemic kind of spurred that on. But what do you think was the biggest change in the innovation landscape or the way we innovate pre-pandemic versus post-pandemic? Has there been any changes or? Um, It's a a really good question. I think firstly, on the incremental level, everyone just had to get up to scratch on basic digital transformation. So all of those classic corporates before that were like, oh, we can't work from home, or oh, we're not a, a, a digital native, we're not tech savvy. They just all had to like level up. Um, so firstly, they, they were forced to, which often happens, a disruption causes people to actually innovate, but I wouldn't really call this innovate, it's just leveling up, because a lot of that stuff was fairly like BAU in 
developed um, companies where they cared about this like 10, 20 years ago. In terms of beyond that, I, I personally think it's, it's the laying multiple bets. One, I think pre-innovation, people always thought that in order to successfully innovate, they had to build or create something. But if you actually look at the data, like 80% of companies end up moving into different spaces through traditional M&A. It's not as sexy, it's M&A, but often that's how they acquire certain capabilities. Um, so people are seeing that as an option now, but they're also understanding that beyond the technology speed piece, if they really want to reinvent their core business and move beyond that, they have to explore what it looks like to launch a new business and accept that it may fail. Like if you look at all of the different um, products and services Amazon has launched, there's, there's hundreds and not all of them really succeed. And I think companies are understanding that to do that, they have to be prepared to fail, but they can also accept that they don't have to do something new. They don't have to build something in order to move into a new space. It's less sexy, but also cheaper to explore M&A and other just pure investment opportunities, which is why we're seeing the whole rise of CBC as well. And everyone wants to set up their own CBC arm because they're understanding that maybe if we just invest in the people that can do this best, we don't have to, quote, be a startup. That whole classic corporates need to act like a startup doesn't always work. Um, so looking at those different methods of doing innovation, I think has been the biggest change, along with like people just leveling up on the basics. Absolutely. I'm curious what your thoughts are in terms of innovating within a corporate environment versus innovating within a startup sort of tech hub accelerator environment because you're in a unique position you've kind of seen both or you're experiencing both what do you think is the core difference between the two or are there any things that are done well on one side that the other could learn from or vice versa so i think one of the core differences that corporates do um that i think you can look at it in two ways one it can be constraining one, it can actually be um, a positive for startups is whatever they do, it has to be connected to their existing strategy. So you've got innovation strategy, you've got corporate strategy. You also have their operating model, like all these corporates have a massive operating model. It's, you know, it's how they oil the machine. And often when they look at innovation poorly, you have a separate operating model that focuses on innovation. But really, you should just have one core operating model that has enough agility to allow for innovation and having that strategic mindset. And that's something we do a lot at Bain. We say we're not just blue sky thinkers. We understand innovation, but we understand it's linked to business strategy. Means that what we do focus on with clients becomes practical, tangible, and we can actually understand the market growth and niches in certain areas of their business model where this will benefit. So that is a positive. On the flip side, you could say it's a negative because you have these organizational constraints. You have certain structural um, elements in place that you can't change. There's, there's certain hierarchy. You need certain sign-offs. There's, there's, um, um, there's different gateways in order to get in funding. And the metrics maybe have to be like always there and they have to be 100%. And you, they don't understand that maybe there will be a loss or maybe there will be some not so sexy metrics for the first six to 12 months. Um, that's a negative on it. But if I think of startups on the flip side, they don't have any of those constraints, which is great because they can test and learn and they can be as creative as possible. But 
you know, just looking at the classic models like Lean Startup, it is a very structural process. And I think uh, sometimes startups, when they try and innovate, they just think, let's do something completely out of the box and super creative, which is great. But like, A, is there a need for it? Um, and B, will people pay for that need? Um, and I think that's always something that's probably missing. And I think the power, to be honest, is when startups and corporates do innovate together. It doesn't always work. Um, but if we're looking at some of the big structural systemic issues that we're facing, especially around sustainability and health, having both those ways of working um, complement each other to an extent. Um, and I think that's, that's something we need to start doing more of. Instead of like corporates trying to be too much like startups or startups trying to be too creative without any set direction, we need kind of a bit of both. Um, in order for like proper innovation to happen. Absolutely. I've seen a few instances where corporates try and create sort of sandbox environments so they can work with startups. So maybe, I don't know, a bank has data and they open it up to startups to come in and plug in, trial out a few things, and then they can do quick and rapid pilots. But I think one of the biggest things I learned was, you know, corporates just can't move as fast, but they realize the need to move fast. So they kind of let the guys that know how to work fast, i.e. the startups, come in, build something and test it out within two or three months and then see if that works out. Um, so I've seen that kind of work relatively successfully. I don't know if you have any examples of like some uh, amazing uh, ways of working or innovations that you've seen um, at corporates or the way they've worked with startups that you think are you know best in class or good examples that you've seen. Does anything come to mind or? Uh, that was kimchi, by the way, in the background. So <laughs> to be honest, I'm, so the one thing I will say, and I don't think there's any one size fits all or one blueprint because what works for one corporate in a particular office even will be very dependent. Like we've worked with some global companies and working with their London team versus their US team or their India team, different things work for different people. The one thing I will say is that something that I think corporates don't do enough of is look at adjacent industries. So for example, within financial services, there's lots of competition between the retail banks um, and the, um, the nascent startups in the fintech space trying to do a lot of the same stuff. Um, and they're looking to each other as inspiration and competition. But where if you think of the most customer centric industries, it's consumer goods. It's your big players like Unilever, for et cetera. And there's not enough of that cross sectoral lessons learned. We're really like, that's why I think a lot of the ways of workings can be can be re redefined based on other sectors rather than just looking internally at their own sectors. Yeah, absolutely. I will want to kind of come back to that topic that you mentioned of intersectionality and all those types of things. Um, you said that's a trend that you see that's going to change going forward and a bit more emphasis on that. Now, from my perspective, I see a lot of sort of talk from the industry, but very little action. You know, uh, there's a common saying that they say, like, uh, you know, black entrepreneurs are over mentored and underfunded. And it's so weird because you can walk around as well. You know, after the social change, you see all the ads with like diverse people on the ads and all that. But then when you go to the corporate structure or their website, it's all still the same. So it's like one thing is the window dressing versus the actual change. Um, what do you think needs to happen for real change to happen and for the industry to actually 
put their money where their mouth is as opposed to this corporate window dressing, as you mentioned? What, what are some practical things that have to happen on either side of the spectrum? So if we're talking particularly in the VC space, um, one thing that really pains me is when a lot of these institutional players or those with money will put up standard office hours, put their most junior investor on it, and they say, we're helping the community. When in reality, it's nice, but like you said, it's window dressing. And you spoke about it happening with black founders, happens with female founders, happens with LGBTQ plus founders as well. I think one of the most powerful things is to have those intersectional voices on your investment committee. This is always a question I ask, no matter what their thesis is, even those VCs that are focusing on social impact or inclusion, I'm like, oh, that's great. Um, there's lots of diverse people in your company as well. Yeah, your portfolio looks quite diverse, but who's actually making that final decision and what do they look like? And then the usual suspects will creep in and it's not the most diverse players there. So. From my perspective of IQ, I always say have queer voices on your investment committee. Um, secondly, make sure that you have mentors and advisors from within the community you want to invest in. Like you're talking to these founders, yes, but you need, in order to like, what's the right word? Um, validate the investability and really understand it as a true sector, it's it's listening and empowering those people that already form that community in that space to help advise you how you would casually if you're looking to invest in health tech you'd call people within the health tech sector and say you know what are the biggest issues what are the pain points they don't really do that at the moment for different diverse founders it will more be like we've ticked a box we have this fund for this amount let's just pick a couple of founders and get it done so people understand that we've done it but they don't really properly investigate and research within that area. Another one which is probably the most difficult to find is looking for deal flow in non-traditional spaces. So if I talk again from my experience at LGBTQ plus space, where a lot of these entrepreneurs, especially from the more creative and arts space, may not actually be connected to anyone in VC, but they may be making thriver consumer businesses um, for certain arts and cultural events or in something completely different, but because they're not connected in that circle, they don't have access to those traditional capital flows. So really looking hard beyond those standard places to find those people to invest in. And probably the last one is um, showing how you measure success and re reconsidering that. So again, there's more and more studies showing when you put impact at the heart of investing, the returns are longer. Um, so. It, there's data around that now. So if you do really want to make your investing efforts sustainable, don't just have investability and quick returns as a criteria, but really consider those other factors. And obviously, intersectionality should be one of them. Absolutely. It's so interesting how sort of venture capitalists are tasked with investing in uh, companies that are changing the mode, that are out of the norm, you know, that are doing something innovative and completely different from what's been done before. Yet when you look at how they operate, they still operate in an old school traditional way where it's still warm intros, where, mm -hmm. you know, it's still uh, people being hired from the same schools with the same backgrounds with the same, you know, so it's kind of like this cognitive dissonance that I see 
Um, and I, you know, you follow VC Twitter and you see some prominent people like Dell Johnson that are saying we should ban warm intros because it's just reinforcing biases and all those kinds of things. So, uh, you know, I, I completely agree. I think there needs to be a radical shakeup. And, uh, you know, there are a few platforms like Open Scout and like Open LP that are trying to change it, but it's so slow and it takes time to move these things along. I really would like to see us move a lot faster in this capacity. But one of the common objections or pushbacks I get is that, look, VCs are after returns and that's all they're after. They don't care whether it's diverse or LGBTQ or whatever it is like that. That's nice to have, but it's not their primary goal. What do you say to people that kind of come against that rebuttal um, or that pushback? So what I would say is, and this is the whole mantra behind IQ, investing in intersectional incredibles. Someone who has an intersectional identity, which means they have two or more different marginalizations. They may be black and queer or female and from a, a low socioeconomic background, they've gone through certain life experiences and had certain resilience and had to alter themselves and talk to different audiences and empathize in different ways, which means they're better entrepreneurs and therefore they can empathize with customer segments in a more, um, in a more powerful way. And that in turn means the products and services they produce will have higher returns and will have higher impacts. And particularly when we're looking at such convoluted problems, like, again, the standard one, like climate change, which depending on which city or even which locale of a city and which area you're looking at, needs such niche, niche solutions for different communities. So if you have intersectional founders who not just flown through life with privilege and they understand what it means to be in certain situations and they, you know, they, they adjust their tone or their body or they've had to do certain things which are microaggressions and forms of marginalization and do need systemic policy change. But it also means they've grown with that ability to really empathize. And there's a growing amount of data. It is like scattered and there's not enough on it. It's underfunded and under-researched from universities to consulting firms to, to psychological institutions that show that, that there is high creativity and innovation if you come from one of those backgrounds. And that's one of the things we're starting to do at iCubed, we're hunting for research partners to do a proper longitudinal study that looks at the psychology, behavioral economics, and essentially the mantras of these intersectional founders to show that if you care about returns, then these are the people you should be investing in. And also, if you care about a sustainable future, as, as well as returns, then you need diverse voices to, to make that change happen. Yeah, I have a thought or, or a hypothesis that over the next couple of years, this thirst for crowdsourced or democratized ways of doing things is going to keep getting bigger and bigger. I mean, if you look at Bitcoin, for instance, that's a democratized financial system in some way, shape, or form. Even uh, Web3, it's a way of democratizing ownership of these platforms. Instead of us giving our data to LinkedIn or whatever it is, and then they get the value, the value is accrued by the users as well. I think the innovation process, and even hopefully the venture capital space, will get to a point where it's the crowd or the group that's deciding what companies to back um, and how those dollars are distributed, as opposed to some sort of central entity or particular firm that decides how capital gets allocated. Do you think that's a feasible model? Do you think we're moving towards that sort of maybe a VC DAO? I don't know if you know much about those kinds of things, but imagine you know that kind of platform. Do you think that's the way things are going, or do you think a centralized approach is the way things are are always going to be, and maybe it might even work better? 
Um, not to give a cop-out answer, but I think it's it's going to be a mixture of both. Um, mm -hmm. I do I do agree that for certain communities, we're going to see a move towards like uh, in in my space, I call it like queers investing in queers. Mm -hmm. um, people that actually understand the end users and the end products and services, them dictating where the investment should go. Mm -hmm. But I think if it's purely that, you're investing in your own community, but there may not be as big a generation on financial shift in power if there's not that capital coming centrally as well. Mm -hmm. So if all, for example, again, very fictitiously, all these marginalized communities form their own little investment committees, still the majority of that capital is still held by certain people. So they're doing their own thing, but then standard capital is still going through the same circles and distribution isn't really happening which is why I think you probably need a mixture of the both. You need to queer up the central powers and do your own stuff on the ground as well. Because um, otherwise, yeah, it just becomes disjointed and capital is still moving in the same circles and it's not actually being redistributed. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I love that that phrase, queer up the central circles. I'm going to use that going forward. But uh, yeah, one of the biggest travesties to me is how the traditional LP community and by LPs, limited partners, these are people that invest in venture capital firms, um, especially pension funds, endowments, things of that nature. They accept money from a diverse group of, of people, right? Pensions uh, take money from companies or you know industries, uh, but who they invest their money with, those pension funds, is not representative of who they take their money from, if that makes sense. So I, I contribute to a pension. You do. Everyone does. You know, if you look at the, let's say, U.S. landscape, for instance, 13% of the U.S. is, you know, African-American, which means by and large, pension funds are probably, you know, collecting 13% of their fees or 13% of their, their, their assets under management from African-Americans. But when you look at the asset managers, they give that money to to invest in, it's like 0.05% are African-Americans. So long story short, I think if pension funds or these large institutions can collect money from certain communities, they should also be able to invest money in those same communities. And I think it should actually be mandated legislatively. What do you think of that concept or idea? Or do you think that's kind of too radical? No, no, I, I totally agree with that. Um, and, and I do think, like you said, it, it's kind of in a similar way. If you just look at the basic political process, like parliament in the UK should represent society. So the money and pension funds that people are given should then be invested in the people that gave it. It should be representative. And I, I think a nice byproduct of that, and I think everyone, not just because I'm in this industry, should be savvy about their finances. But if there's actual choice and you can see the impact of where your investment is going, and if it's going in your community or people that you're familiar with, it will encourage more active management. And it may also encourage more entrepreneurship and like, calculated risk-taking because most people that they don't care where their pension goes or they don't think about it but mm. if they're told oh actually these are the options and they may be like oh okay maybe i'll pay more attention to this uh make a few calculated bets or do a couple of risky ones or actually follow this more then these large pension funds for example will actually get more benefit from that because they have an en engaged end user base and it's not just a habitual like um streamlined thing in the background which is also a benefit because we don't want to spend all of our time like on the apps and tracking like where our pensions going but if it was actually invested in causes that are close to us then having more active managers as a response is, is always going to be a positive thing 
Absolutely. Man, we could speak about this stuff all day, but I'm trying to keep this episode sort of short and to the point for our audience. Um, but, you know, we'll probably have you back for part two in a couple of weeks, uh, you know, to kind of share more about what you're working on um, and some of the, the resources that are out there. But if people want to reach out to you, Christian, and kind of get uh, your input or your thoughts or even just to kind of help you, uh, how can they reach you? And I guess what are the one or two things that you want to leave with the audience? For sure. Um, so I'd say the two easiest platforms always LinkedIn and Instagram. Um, and I can share the details for you to put out with this with this post anyway. But yeah, just send me a DM, send me a direct message. Um, always happy to chat. Um, and like you said, I can talk about this all day as well. I think in terms of like call to action um, with the multiple hats, I mean, on the Bain side, always happy to explore how individuals, organizations of, and corporates are thinking about doing innovation from seed all the way to scale. On the iCube side, if you are a queer founder or you know queer founders or you know investors who care about intersectionality and inclusion, please get in touch. If you're outside of London and you're thinking of launching your own iCube chapter, we have different city chapters, feel free to reach out. Um, and yeah, I guess the final thing is watch this space. We've, we've got research that we're working on We've got some exciting capital announcements coming in terms of how we're going to be investing in our community. Um, and if you'd like to hear more, or get involved, just reach out. We're really excited to collaborate. Fantastic. Thanks for being on the show, Christian. Thank you. Thanks for having me.